0: Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of Venturesuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome once again to the
1: Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik from Venturesuperfly.com, where we help you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self doubt. Today I'm interviewing Rick Field. He's the founder of Rick's Picks, a brand of pickles based in Brooklyn, New York. After a career as a television producer for VH1, and Bill Moyers, Rick founded Rick's Picks in 2004 in his one bedroom apartment. Over the course of the next several years, he built the company into a national brand known for savory, hand-packed, all-natural pickles made with produce from trusted local farmers. The company has won numerous industry awards for its exceptional quality and distinctive flavor. Hello, Rick. Thanks for taking the time. I'm excited that you're here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast.
2: Thank you very much, John. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: So, Rick, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Let's Get Personal, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. Rick, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions?
2: I'm ready for all three parts in sequence.
1: Fantastic, here we go. So Rick, tell us the story. How did you originally discover the idea to start Rick's Picks, of all things, a pickle brand?
2: Well. First of all, let's be clear. Although my company, Rixpix, has gotten some credit for creating a new premium category uh, within what has been typically a commodity a center store grocery category over the last 10 to 15 years, pickling uh, as a concept has been around for 4,000 years since Mesopotamian times. So this is a very ancient tradition. So it's important to remember that. And you know, food preservation uh, is at the heart of, of what pickle making is all about and you know people have always needed to make sure to put up produce and other forms of food for times when they're not freshly available. So against that that backdrop, I learned to make pickles with my family growing up in New England. We spent the summers in Vermont and we would pickle very traditional recipes, dill pickles and pickled string beans which we called dilly beans. And the ritual of making these pickles was a very powerful part of my childhood and something that I carried forward as an adult when I came to the New York City to uh, become the next great Sundance film director slash uh, Nike commercial director. Yeah. So I, I, I came to the Big Apple with an entirely different agenda after college and pursued it with vigor for 15 years. I had a great time, but I always missed those family pickles from the summer back in Vermont. And so I started making them again exactly as my mom and dad had taught me. And I discovered that, you know what? I was pretty good at it, and it was a lot of fun. And from there, I applied what I call soup logic. And what I mean by that is that when you make soup from scratch, it's never the same twice, right? You add a little bit more of this, a little less of that from batch to batch, and that's what makes it fun and different. And so, to give you one example, I took the Traditional dilly bean, which was the family staple the, the pickled string bean, which is of course the go-to swizzle stick for Bloody Mary, but that's another topic. I took that recipe, which had uh, an entirely Western flavor profile based on white vinegar, dill, and cayenne pepper, and I kind of messed with it and took out. Um, the cayenne heat and replaced it with wasabi powder. This was at a point when wasabi was, you know, still kind of on the rise and hadn't really kind of crested and jumped the shark, if you will, as an ingredient. So it was interesting for me to explore its potential in the pickled context and took out some of the, the vinegar and replaced it with soy sauce to give the overall product a little bit more of an Asian slant. And all of a sudden I had something completely new and different. And that was very inspiring to me because I had taken the family recipe and kind of wrestled with it and made it my own. And that became sort of the hallmark of how I went about building a portfolio of products, which I did entirely innocently with no intention whatsoever of starting a business. I would bring them to parties. Happy birthday. Here you go. Instead of a CD, here's a jar of pickles. And people would be like, uh, OK. And then they'd be like, gee, they're pretty good. You might have a business here. And so wouldn't you know it, some of these friends and family ended up becoming my friends and family investors later on. The tipping point for me was very, very cinematic in nature and almost uh, you know, too good to be true from a sort of a plot line standpoint. I lost my TV job. I broke up with my girlfriend. I turned 40, and I won a pickle contest pretty much at the same time. <laughs> so obviously the stars were aligning. The universe was calling to me, and it was time to start Rick's Picks. I had gotten very comfortable in my former professional life in film and TV as a freelancer with a kind of condition that I call floating, whereby you you sort of get used to the idea that things are going to be perpetually unstable. You know, this is not a traditional nine to five environment. And I think that that background and that sort of mindset that comes with it uh, really served me well when I was ready to make my midlife transition. A lot of people have asked me, you know, about that, you know, oh, I I have this idea for a product or a thing, you know, whether it's a food food product or not. And, you know, you come to an inflection point where you have to decide, are you really going to go for it? And it's sort of like jumping off a cliff. You're either going to do it or not. And some people, you know, prefer a a safer environment, you know, a corporate job, uh, and that's how they want to go. Other people may not have the resources to do something like this, and I'm not saying I had a lot of resources, but I, I've always been comfortable making champagne on a beer budget. I mean, that was how I learned about television, working, you know, both at VH1 and for Bill Moyers at PBS. It was always trying to make something really great with limited resources, and you know that mentality is very, very helpful when you're in startup mode with a food business. So. You know, I, I kind of reached this place where the stars were lining, and I had to decide if I was going to fully professionalize what had been an obsessive hobby, and I was able internally to answer yes to that question, and then I proceeded forward intuitively towards what I thought would be a good way to start, uh, and that was to position myself at the farmers' market in Union Square in New York City, and indeed, that proved to be an excellent place to launch a business like mine, all of the uh, most discriminating bloggers, buyers, food industry professionals of other stripes, and and discriminating shoppers pass through there, not casually because they happen to be by there, but every week as part of their weekly routine. And so I was able to expose my, my pickle ideas to a pretty wide range of people fairly rapidly, and get some good traction with retail locally. And then there was an article that appeared about four months after we launched on me in the dining section of the New York Times, that kind of captured some of the things that I said to you before about, you know, making a midlife transition from television to pickles. Of course, there wasn't, you know, much of a brand story there yet because we were brand new. But, um, you know, the seeds of the idea were there. And um, the day after that article was published, I got a call from Whole Foods. And that began what has been a very mutually beneficial uh, partnership that's lasted to this day.
1: Very fascinating story. And now, at this point in the business's journey, who do you sell to now? I know you sell to Whole Foods, but list some of the other retailers and the channels.
2: Well, some of our most noteworthy large-volume customers include Kroger, Publix, Wegmans, The Fresh Market, Shake Shack, Blue Apron. These are some of our main, main clients. Central Market is another great one. Meyer in the Midwest. One of the things you learn as a business person, even if you have a wonderful relationship with an individual retailer, you don't want to have all of your eggs in one basket. If you're launching a new product, you might do an exclusive for a 90-day period, but you know, over the course of your business's life cycle, you want to have a diversity of a list clients if you're able to do so so that, you know, as as things change within one individual chain, you're able to still have other, other opportunities. So it's good to have a diverse base of, of clients in that way.
1: Sure, that's good advice. How many products did you start out with and how many products do you have now?
2: That is a fantastic question. I made what I considered to be the obvious decision at the outset, which was to launch my business with a diverse and fully realized portfolio of products. So that meant nine SKUs, which spread out across a wide range of vegetables, flavor profiles, and usage occasions. At the time, I didn't know any better. If I was doing it again, I would have launched with three, not nine. And I should have learned from my TV experience the power and the potency of that number three, because it's real. If you think about TV ad campaigns, most major ones will launch with a trio of ads. And that's because one is an idea, two is a concept, three is a campaign. If you have three iterations of any one idea in a given concept, generally speaking, you can represent the, the full power of the message with three. And I should have done that in order to eliminate complexity in the early days of my business. But like I said, I didn't know any better. So I launched with nine. And one of the things that you realize very quickly is that you are only new once, right? So... There's a pressure that's both self-generated and market-driven to bring new products to the market on an annual basis. And I felt that pressure and acted on it, routinely introducing at least one new product every year. Typically in grocery, product lines are reviewed on an annual basis at a consistent time of year. In the case of pickles, the product reviews are generally December into January. And that's to allow for a 90-day period before the shelf is reset In the case of pickles, that would be April, which is, uh, of course, the beginning of when the weather warms up and when people start to think about barbecuing, except in Texas, of course, where people barbecue 12 months a year.
1: Rick, I often like to give some perspective to aspiring entrepreneurs when they launch a business like this. And one of those perspectives have to do with the labor required or the personnel. In your first year of business, maybe let's say your first year anniversary, How many employees did you have at that point, and how many employees do you have now?
2: Well, first of all, there are different ways to characterize that because you've got the central team in the home office, which in my case has ranged from, you know, in the earliest of early days, it was just me, myself, and I, to a peak of, I would say, five or six people. But we have, at our production facility in upstate New York, we have two people there who are dedicated to our, our portion of what gets made in that facility, plus obviously the people on the floor that can number anywhere from 15 to 30 depending on what product we're making. You've got a network of brokers that in- includes you know, people all around the country, hundreds of people um, that are managed collectively by me and my team. Here at the home office in Bushwick right now, uh, I just have two fo- two people because there's a lot of a lot of the work is outsourced to you know these other parts, the copacker where all the production happens and all the distribution happens, and the broker network where the, their relationships help to build my business.
1: Yeah, that's fabulous. It's amazing what people can do outsourcing and working with a core group of individuals that know what they're doing.
2: Yeah, well, let me let me add one more point to that, too, which is that, you know, I've I've entered um, a sector of the industry that's a fairly challenging low margin enterprise, even at its best. You're not talking about the kinds of margins that you can see in other grocery categories, beverages, chips, things like that that turn faster and have more natural margins. So you know, the scaling scaling people um, hasn't happened according to the the pace or timeline that I would ideally prefer. And I've had to kind of fall back on my Swiss Army knife skill set of knowing just enough about pretty much everything to, to wear, you know, quite a few hats, even to this day. Uh, I think it's fair to say that my skill set resides much more strongly in certain areas than in others. And I'm working very hard as we speak to build out the team based around a shift in the in the overall arc of the business that would kind of merit an expansion of personnel. Because I'm, I'm a brand guy, I'm a leader, I'm a recipe guy, I'm a relationships guy, but I've, I've met lots of people who are better at spreadsheets than I am. And I think in a perfect world, I would leave 100% of those uh, spreadsheets to those folks. It falls to me you know, to do the best I can with the resources I have now, champagne on a beer budget again, But I'm working towards a new model that basically involves a shift from Rick, the founder, the entrepreneur, the pickle guy, to what Rick can pick, which I see as a larger halo, a larger brand halo, a bigger business opportunity, and a wider range of not only products within the shelf-stable pickle category but also product categories in general. There's a a pretty decent uh, example that I think a lot of your audience will, will resonate with, which is Honest Tea. They, the, the founders wrote a wonderful graphic novel describing the arc of their business that everybody should read called Mission in a Bottle. And, you know, one of the things that they talked about there was the shift they made from a focus around the word tea, which is how they launched. We have the best tea. We know where to source the best tea. We're the tea guys, T. to a focus on the word honest. And that's where the, the product portfolio began to include uh, a wider range of products and categories, honest fizz, honest kids. And the business scaled rapidly at that point. So, you know, will I be able to achieve, you know, that kind of hockey stick growth with what I'm doing? We'll see. But um, I think that the paradigm shift is is an important one, and it's a central focus for me right now.
1: Approximately how many retail doors do you serve at the moment?
2: Several thousand, somewhere between maybe 2,500 and 3,500, somewhere in there.
1: Fantastic. Rick, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Rick's pick's uniqueness, did your original assumption about the product line's uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, or did you discover a different selling proposition after being in business for a while and after getting some customer feedback?
2: That's a great question, uh, and I've got an answer that'll kind of touch on several points.
1: First of all,
2: everything that I brought to market initially were things that I, Rickfield, thought were cool and interesting, and I wasn't trying to fill a void, a perceived void in the market, nor was I trying to necessarily do better than something that I had seen. Uh, It was an intuitive process of things that I thought were interesting and delicious. That's another reason why The the product line was a a set of ideas that I thought were interesting and delicious. And here's where the farmer's market was a real benefit in the early days. You got direct customer feedback from discriminating shoppers on a weekly basis. People would say to me as an example, Rick, you're a New York guy, what the heck? Where on earth is your sour pickle? And I'd have to explain that I was making pickles in the home canning tradition that comes from New England and this shelf-stable process didn't yield a final product that had the same type of barrel fermented essence that you know, you're know you trying to go for here when you describe a sour pickle. And people's eyes would glaze over. And eventually I got bored with saying that. And I was like, you know what, I have to figure out how to make a, a pickle that has that sour pucker appeal, but do it in my style. And uh, I worked hard and came up with classic sours, which is now, wouldn't you know it, our number one skew and has been for over five years. So that was an example of listening to the market the direct feedback I was getting from consumers and acting on it to address what I didn't even realize was a hole in my portfolio. Additionally, one of the things that's really interesting about pickles in relationship to customer feedback is what I call the heritage piece. People have very strong feelings about their pickles and whether they're from Poland, Japan, or Louisiana, I mean, try to think of three cultures that are more different than those three. There's a vibrant tradition of pickle making that originates with them there, and as they come forward in whatever fashion they do in life and eventually maybe wind up in New York, they bring those ideas with them and have very strong feelings about them. So if you don't find that with cottage cheese or potato chips. Um, you know Nobody says, you know, this tastes just like the potato chip my grandmother used to make. You just don't hear that. But you do hear a lot of, wow, this pickle really reminds me of what my grandmother made. Or sometimes, you know what? This pickle is not as good as my grandmother's. Sorry, dude.
1: <laughs> so, Rick, let's get personal on a few topics. Given your background as a TV producer with VH1 and others, my hunch is that you might be a creator at heart which led you to that industry and i'm wondering about your thoughts on that and specifically whether or not you saw starting a pickle company frankly as perhaps another medium to tell a story or to create or to produce
2: well i i think that the, the creative essence of the work emanates from the exact same part of my brain as the work that i did in film and television previously the aesthetic realm Uh, is a vast one and you know for me it covers food and and visual images and written words and music and at its best and at my best you know they're all melded together so they're definitely all part and parcel of the same thing and I mentioned the word intuitive earlier Uh, and I think that a lot of creative people will talk about how their intuition is often a very good guide for their best work that certainly was the case for me. What you end up with though, and this is, you know, something that I have to deal with on a daily basis now is that, you know, the first syllable of grocery is gross. It can be a nasty industry. um, And it's all about numbers at the end of the day. And, you know, that doesn't really have much to do with flavor profiles or romance copy on the jar, you know, or a great narrative about your grandmother. So, you know, one of those kind of, Seminal questions that I always ask people when when they ask me Do you think I should go forward with my idea for a business? I say look I'm gonna ask you one question All right, and if you answer yes, we can talk about your business for another hour And if you answer no the conversations over and you'll know why Do you know what that question is John do you love? paperwork Because if you don't love paperwork do not get involved in the food business There is so much paperwork associated with product launches, placements in new retailers, chargebacks, deductions. It is literally overwhelming. And, you know, well-run businesses have people in each, you know, job category who just address those things on a daily basis. And, you know, this is a case where the devil is in the details. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that their artisan food hobby, the thing that's so passionate for them and their small circle of friends in their home environment takes on a much less sexy and romantic sheen once you enter the marketplace. And that's a tough lesson to learn. And once again, I would say from my own case, the fact that I've been at it for a while is largely due to the fact that I'm comfortable with that kind of sort of relatively unstable environment where things are constantly in flux and oscillating and changing and being able to recognize that Any one individual moment is not the worst nor the best that you'll see as you go forward.
1: What have been your biggest joys since starting the company? You talked a little bit about the frustrations of of paperwork and the immenseness of that. But how about joys? What are you most proud of?
2: Well, I can think of several things. I remember a feeling of transcendent joy when at 6.30 in the morning, I was driving in the Black Dirt part of Orange County in upstate New York to go visit Frank Dagley, who's a beet farmer. I drove my Subaru, filled it with 25 bags of beets once a week. So the car is now down to the hubcaps, uh, you know, the back part of the car. I'm using it as a truck. And I'm driving through the morning mist listening to John Coltrane and thinking about how cool this new thing that I'm doing is. That was a very joyful, and that's a nice way to, you know, sort of showcase how interaction with people, food, and music, which I mentioned earlier, you know, this nexus of different kind of ideas and thought processes, it's an important part of what I've loved about doing this. You know, I have pride around um, the speed with which I became a national business. I have great respect and, and appreciation for some of the relationships that I've had with, with some of our partners, You know, the ones that are more enlightened about how business gets done. Good example there would be Shake Shack. I have a great sense of joy when I'm confronting something new, something that's incipient, something that's growing, something that's on the come. People would always say to me when I was at the farmer's market table, what's your favorite pickle? And initially, I would look at the table, and I would see which one wasn't selling well, and I would say, oh, that one, you know, to try to give it a boost. And um, eventually, I graduated from that to the answer, which was, which is my favorite pickle? Don't ask me to choose amongst my children. They're all the same. I love them all equally. And then I got bored with that answer. And so now when people say, hey, man, what's your favorite pickle? I say, the next one.
1: Rick, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned and successful ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it?
2: Well, I used to face a lot of pressure in my former career in television based around things like, is the talent gonna show up and is she gonna agree to wear the red dress that the client wants her to wear? Things like that, You know, really important, life-changing things that have so much to do with the future of the planet. And even when I was wrestling with those anxious moments, I uh, slept well at night. Ever since I started Rick's Picks, I've been a raging insomniac, even when I've had a few beers before bed, you know? And um, I always say that when the movie is made about Rick picks on the poster, it's gonna say, he followed his dream and found insomnia. And that's been a real issue for me. And it isn't really anything specific, but it's more a question of uh, the mind constantly churning about what needs to get done, where the challenges are, you know, people talk about um, SWOT, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And, you know, you're constantly evaluating a matrix of all of those things in your mind, whether you realize it or not. It can be very, very uneasy wow. times um, when you get into that, into that place. And, it, you know, it's certainly been true for me.
1: And how have you best dealt with that? Or do you just, is it just ongoing and you just have to because you're in what you're in?
2: I'll tell you, the best strategy I've come up with for dealing with anxiety in a general sense about business is to figure out strategies to get something done to completion. There's a tendency that a lot of entrepreneurs have in a given eight hour day, or let's be honest, in a given 14 hour day, to spend one hour on each of 14 tasks. And my history has been much more solid when I've spent 14 hours on one task and finished it, whatever it might be, because that completion, the ability to check off a box in whatever part of your business you're talking about, that's gold. Whether you're monetizing it or not, it could be be financial gold or it could be mental gold.
1: Rick, starting a business is really difficult, as you know, and even managing it. How has starting your own business changed you as a person, if at all?
0: I
2: live in a very fast-paced, intense city, New York, is the kind of place where people form opinions and judge people and things and situations pretty quickly, snap judgments. And all of this, I think, has been further accelerated by the rise of the internet and everything that millennial culture has brought to us. My kind of counterpoint to that has been to have a heightened sense of equanimity. If somebody's going crazy on something, you know, I'll tend to try to be very calm around that situation. Um, let the other person get the crazy out of their system, and then we can both reset it. Like I said before, generally, it's never as bad as it seems or as good as it seems in any one individual moment. So that that kind of approach has, has certainly served me well. I think also that, um, particularly as it pertains to the pickle business in terms of the product category that I'm in and you know where we are on the time-space continuum right now, I've got one foot in the 20th century and one foot in the 21st century in a way that I find very appealing. The essence of my product in fact predates the 20th century by a long stretch, but it, it's, a, it's a time-honored traditional premise that I'm, I'm engaged in at its heart. I'm also bringing some new millennium thinking to it, some progressive ideas, both in terms of what the product should taste like and how they should be used. So it's a little bit of both. And when I was forming the what I call the log line, for rick's picks the log line is a movie term i'll give you an example dinosaurs come back to life and destroy new york okay in that one sentence you know exactly what the movie's about and i always advise entrepreneurs to have their log line down pat and make sure it's really tight cogent and focused because if you can't express the essence of your own idea in a single sentence how the heck are you going to get anybody else to understand it with that level of depth and and sophistication The logline for Rick's Picks has been, is, and always will be the following. Rick's Picks makes pickles for people who cherish the traditions of home canning and delight in the innovative spirit of the food world today. And I, I put that single sentence on a piece of paper and gave it to the people who were bidding on designing my original label to see what they would do with that and how they would interpret it. And I think if you look at a Rick's Picks label, you'll see that it's been very accurately rendered in graphic depicted
1: form. Rick, what have you learned most about yourself since starting Rick's Picks?
2: Well, I think I've learned that despite the frenetic pace of entrepreneurship, it's important to find you know, a way to bracket your work world from the rest of your life, and that was a process that took me a long time to kind of perfect. I used to work six or seven days every week, and that type of continuous engagement with the business fueled by insomnia, was not a recipe for a serene personal life. I've been able to kind of put a bracket around when I'm working and when I'm not a little bit more, despite the fact that I have a mobile phone and a computer and this and that. And that bracketing gives me the ability to be rocking and rolling work-wise when I need to and on soul jazz time when I'm just doing my thing.
1: Who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally?
2: Well, as far as the pickles go, um, my parents, I have a lot of music heroes Miles Davis, John Coltrane, the Beatles, sports heroes.
1: Do you think those music heroes have helped you with the business at all, either directly or indirectly?
2: Yeah, I mean, music flows through me every day, and it can be a lot of different kinds and forms of music. But I, I think, you know, the life of the mind, you know, has a soundtrack that beats along perpetually. And it's a key part of sort of my personal DNA, my aesthetic DNA.
1: So here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Rick, it sounds like you did raise capital from family and friends. How did you go about doing that in the early days?
2: I've raised money in practically every format that capital can be raised for an entrepreneurial business. I've had a friends and family round, I've had an angel round, I've raised money on a crowdfunding platform, I've done a convertible note, I've done bank loans. So I've I've run the gamut. And one thing, you know, hasn't been necessarily better than any other thing. I mean, each one of them was kind of what was important at the time. You know, I think that I was probably less guarded than I would have been at, were I doing it again with regards to you know, distributing equity to people, I think I probably would have held things a little closer to the vest, or, or would in a, in, a, in a 2.0 Rick's Picks, a different business that I might do. Um, but I'm also not a, a person who's particularly obsessed with personal wealth, so, um, you know, that, that side of it probably serves me, serves me well in that regard. But I think that there are inflection points when it's appropriate to raise capital, and then there are times that you raise money to keep the lights on. And the more you can focus on on driving your growth towards those inflection points and raising capital in a credible way for the right reason as opposed to providing triage, that's good.
1: Do you package the pickles yourself or did you outsource that piece?
2: We have what's called a co-packing relationship, meaning – we have a an nda and a, a working agreement with our production partner up in kingston and you know we have a enlightened partnership that extends beyond just manufacturing to include you know warehousing and handling uh, the distribution outbound from the warehouse so that's been the model that i followed we do not own our own facility there's a, a lot of responsibility that comes with that but also you control a lot more of the margin and where the cash goes so You know, there are upsides and downsides. It's not the kind of question that has just one answer to it. The decision about whether to co-pack or have your own facility is really unique to everybody's personal circumstances, the nature of their manufacturing process, and how they want to spend their time as an entrepreneur.
1: Great advice. Finally, Rick, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing bits of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners?
2: Well, If I was going to offer one piece of advice to an entrepreneur who by definition is the leader of a team, I would say try to bring life to work every day. And by life I mean leadership, integrity, focus, and energy. And if you bring those four things with you to the office every day, you have as good a shot as you possibly can in a world that is turbulent and uncertain, never more so than now I might add, but you have your best shot.
1: Rick, very great closing wise advice. You've been a fantastic guest, offering some excellent stories to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And by the way, for more information, gift ideas, recipes, and more, visit rickspicks.com.
0: Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.